Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I am Michael Bradley, and this is episode 70. This time out, we are looking at the fifth storyline from the Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip. It's it's slightly a better story than Assassins and Spies, which was the fourth storyline. It's not a vast turnaround, but, but an improvement nonetheless. Before that, though, I have got a little bit of feedback. This is an email from Sean Engel in response to episode 66, which was the first episode where... I was flying solo looking at episodes of the radio show. And just to be clear, Sean's not behind, I am. Because he actually sent this just a day or two after that episode was released. But he wrote, Hey Michael, I'm writing in to say that I really enjoyed the episode this week. I think you did a fantastic job without Charlie, even though his presence will be missed. The two of you had a great rapport that brought a lot to the radio show episodes, but your commentary was great on its own. Kudos for the stinger music at the end. It was both touching and humorous. Also, I'm glad you played a portion of the radio show in the podcast. I have to agree with you about the quality of the episode. It had just enough action and drama elements to make it really captivating. And if this was the episode they played on Superman Day at the fair, and I was a kid there, I would be totally into it. The voice acting of the person playing Holbein was great as well. Not the -the over-the-top criminal mastermind voice but one with enough menace to let listeners know that that he was up to no good. Since these shows are primarily public domain, maybe you can add an episode of the storyline to the show, provided that you thought it was good enough to be included. Anyhow, the show is awesome as always, and I'll be back next week for more. Sincerely, Sean Engel, a.k.a. Joe Anthrax. And thanks, Sean. It's really great to hear that people still enjoy the radio episodes of the show, even without Charlie. I, I certainly think that the show is missing something without Charlie here, but I'm I'm glad listeners will still get something out of it. And, and like I said, I, I think Charlie will, will be back at some point, even if it's only for a one-episode guest appearance. That's actually not a bad idea, though, about adding in an episode here and there. I'm not sure if I want to do it every time, but I am trying to work in more clips from the episodes, along with my comments when I can do so naturally and, and I have time in the editing phase. Uh, But I will keep that in mind for future episodes, whenever there is an exceptionally good episode of the radio show that I'm covering. So thanks again, Sean, for the email. Sean is host of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, which focuses on the Green Lantern books from the 90s and going forward, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and, pretty soon, Kyle Rayner. It's an excellent show, and... You've probably heard promos for it in recent episodes, and and will in future episodes, no doubt. And I I really recommend checking it out. The address is justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. And we'll eventually be covering some of the same material over on Green Lantern's Light. But it will be a while, and we actually haven't decided yet if we're going to be covering the Guy Gardner solo series. And I know Sean will be. So be sure to check out Sean's podcast, and I think you will really enjoy it. The 
stay on. Let every breed of Mongo live together in peace. Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com Like I said, this episode, we are looking at the fifth storyline from the Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip. It was comprised of strips 31 through 38 and ran June 2nd to July 21st, 1940. That puts it starting about a week or so after the release of Action Comics number 26 and finishing up just a couple days before the release of Action Comics number 28. While this storyline was going on, the radio show wrapped up the Alonzo Craig storyline and told of Superman's adventures with Horace Morton, Hans Holbein, and the Happy Land Amusement Park. Meanwhile, the dailies told the last half of The Unknown Strikes before launching Superman into a brand new adventure that we'll be looking at in an upcoming episode. Also of note, as mentioned on previous episodes... Superman Day at the World's Fair took place on July 3rd, 1940, so right in the middle of this storyline. This story has been called The Chosen, and was written by Jerry Siegel. Art for the first five strips is credited to Paul Cassidy, and possibly Paul Loretta, while the final three strips are credited to Wayne Boring and Don Commissaro. We open as Clark Kent is assigned to interview Henry Ronaldson, a man who Clark describes as a very likable businessman who has been a phenomenal overnight success. Clark heads out, but is turned away, which he finds odd since Ronaldson seems to be acting rather unlike himself. Slipping into a nearby alley, he changes to Superman, determined to get to the bottom of this gigantic, universe-threatening mystery about a businessman who might be having a slightly bad day. Which seems perfectly reasonable to me, I mean, it's not like the country is clawing its way out of the worst economic crash it's ever seen, and there's no possible way at all that it could just be he had indigestion and didn't sleep well the night before. Anyway, Superman leaps to the top of Ronaldson's office building and uses his X-ray vision and superhearing to eavesdrop. What he finds is Ronaldson being anything but benevolent, as he engages in all kinds of evil activities, including evicting an elderly couple for being unable to pay rent, taunting a business rival after ruining his business, and, worst of all, watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. All of this leaves Superman very confused. I pride myself on being a good judge of character, he says. Ronaldson didn't strike me as being the sort of individual who would take cruel advantage of his fellow human beings. I don't get it. And I should pause for a moment and point out that Henry Ronaldson looks quite a bit like a taller version of Harry Donenfeld. 
Maybe it's just a coincidence, but make of that what you will. So, Superman continues his eavesdropping and overhears a phone conversation where someone orders Ronaldson to stick with the bargain that he'd struck and that he's expected soon at a meeting of The Chosen. Puzzled, Superman follows Ronaldson to a dilapidated old building where he meets with a group of other businessmen who likewise became quite wealthy overnight. The meeting is led by a bald, hunchback man named Grizak, who demands the men tell of their activities before saying the Lamite will be pleased with the speed at which they are gaining money for him, but that they must do more or their families will pay. As Ronaldson leaves the meeting, he's attacked by one of the men he'd swindled, which looks like the guy from earlier, but the text seems to indicate it was a different person. Anyway, he comes after Ronaldson with a knife, but Superman dives between the two men. After the knife shatters against Superman's chest, he grabs Ronaldson and leaps to the top of the building, seen unknown to Superman and Ronaldson by Grizak. Once on the roof, Ronaldson cowers, thinking that Superman has been sent by the Lamite. Superman plays along, mostly to get information, but also, no doubt, because Superman finds tormenting traumatized peoples to be a fun hobby. Ronaldson pleads with him to release him from the society, and he says that he realizes their guidance has made him rich, but at too great a price. Seeing that Ronaldson is about to reveal secrets of the Chosen, Grizak grabs a conveniently nearby crowbar and attacks. But Superman simply grabs the tool, bends it into a pretzel shape, and leaps off, soon returning to the Daily Planet as Clark Kent and turning in his story on The Chosen. Apparently just leaving both Ronaldson and Grizak on the roof, despite the fact that Grizak clearly doesn't have Ronaldson's well-being in his mind. But it's okay, I, I guess, because later we catch up with Grizak, who, on orders from the Lamite, invades Ronaldson's home, taking Ronaldson and his family hostage, and bringing them to the, to the Lamite's castle stronghold. Once inside, his family is led away, and Ronaldson is confronted by the disembodied but ominous voice of the Lamite, who tells him he has betrayed his oath of secrecy, and now he and his family will pay with their lives. Ronaldson pleads for mercy, so the Lamite offers him one more chance. He offers Ronaldson a deal, saying that he must kill several prominent individuals. Ronaldson at first refuses to commit murder, but the Lamite counters, saying that he has his choice. It's either the lives of complete strangers, or his family. Soon, at his home, Clark Kent overhears a police call about a disturbance at the home of Congressman Daly. Clark heads out as Superman, only to discover Ronaldson about to fire a gun through the window. At the last minute, however, Ronaldson gets cold feet and makes a run for it. Superman and a pair of officers pursue, ultimately chasing Ronaldson down a blind alley. As Ronaldson turns the corner, Superman swoops in, grabs him, and leaps to a nearby rooftop, leaving the officers very confused about where he went. As the police stand around confused, Superman leaps off with a very amazed Ronaldson in his arm. Ronaldson again pleads for mercy from Superman, who he still believes is working with the Lamite. Superman explains that pretending to be in league with a maniacal madman blackmailing people into committing murder was just all one big joke, and goes on to ask Ronaldson who else he was supposed to kill. Much to Superman's surprise, Ronaldson reveals that he was to kill several other men, including none other than Clark Kent. Landing soon near Clark's apartment, 
Superman tells Ronaldson that he has a plan, and since he knows Clark, he'll fill him in on what's going on. He'll then send Clark out to meet Ronaldson, and Ronaldson can turn Clark over to the Lamite. Superman leaps off, and a few moments later, Clark shows up, and the two men get acquainted. Soon, Ronaldson takes Clark to a prearranged meeting spot with Grizzak. Which is weird, because Ronaldson was charged with killing Clark, not abducting him, but whatever. Soon, the three men arrive at the Lamite's stronghold. They are brought before a magnificent throne, and the Lamite's disembodied voice booms out once more. He congratulates Ronaldson on bringing Clark, but reminds him that his orders were to kill Clark. And it makes me glad that the, uh, the villains of the piece are also recognizing the plot holes. But the Lamite continues saying that uh, since Ronaldson failed, he and his family will die. Ronaldson pleads for mercy, which he seems to be doing a lot in this storyline. But it falls on deaf ears as Grizak leads both he and Clark outside and before a firing squad. Feeling a sudden burst of generosity, Grizak tells Clark and Ronaldson that he will allow them to run to see if they can escape the squad's bullets. As the squad fires, Clark and Ronaldson dash behind a large rock that is just seemingly in the middle of a big field. Realizing that this is a job for Superman, Clark uses his Vulcan nerve pinch to render Ronaldson unconscious, and then plunges his fist into the ground, burrowing downward and disappearing from view. As the guards close in, Superman plows to the ground like some huge Kryptonian beaver, soon popping out of the ground whack-a-mole style, much to the surprise of the thugs. While Superman is laying a complete and totally awesome beatdown on the gun-wielding goons, Grizak raises his gun and prepares to shoot Ronaldson, who is still unconscious. Grizak fires, and with only seconds to act, Superman dashes forward faster than the eye can blink. Diving between Ronaldson and the bullet, the Man of Steel catches the bullet in his teeth, and with a puff of super breath, sends it rocketing back at Grizak himself, hitting the goon in the head. With Ronaldson saved, Superman heads back towards the castle, intent on finding the Lamite. The guards try to raise the drawbridge to block Superman's progress, but the Man of Steel, being totally awesome as we have clearly established, doesn't let a thing like that stop him and crashes through the castle wall, before beginning to lay another beatdown on the Lamite's gathered guards. Five panels later, Superman is still kicking butt. But just before he can get around to taking names, one of the men throws a bomb, resulting in a huge explosion and killing all the men, but leaving Superman unharmed. Before he can regroup and set his sights on the Lamite again, Superman falls through a trapdoor and soon finds himself caught in the web of a gigantic spider. Continuing to prove that Superman hates animals, even those of the giant mutant variety, our hero begins to wail on the arachnid until he hears screaming on the other side of the wall. Busting through the wall, he finds Ronaldson's wife and daughter in the room that is slowly filling with water. He begins to leave with the two women when the Lamite's voice booms out once more, ordering Superman to halt. Smashing through yet another wall, Superman comes face to face with the Lamite himself, an elderly, white-haired scientist. The Lamite gloats about how he will use his evil scientific evilness to take over the world, and then unleashes a horde of giant creatures to attack Superman. Superman easily bests the creatures, but the Lamite is not willing to go down so easily and pulls a switch on the wall, causing the entire castle to explode. Superman is able to use his body to shield Ronaldson's family, and soon reunites them with Ronaldson himself before returning all three safely back to Metropolis. 
Several hours later, Clark returns to the Daily Planet and is congratulated by Lois Lane for his story on The Chosen. Thanks, Lois, Clark replies, but what I really should be congratulated upon is having received your approval. Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, yes, she did. No, she didn't. Yes, she did. No, she didn't. Yes, she did, Peter. I just saw it. All right, take it easy. The end. (laughs) Uh, To get into the notes, strip 31. In the third panel here, we see Superman in the alley changing into his, well, his Superman clothes. And for the first time, the first time that I can remember we see him lacing up his boots. Now, typically in the art, the boots look like they were all one enclosed piece. So, maybe they were meant to have laces up the front, and the artist just didn't draw them in. If you remember back to when I described the costume of the World's Fair Superman, I talked about how that costume had laces up the front of the boots. So, maybe that costume was more accurate than I thought, even though actually seeing the boots in the comics or newspapers to this point, like I said, has been very, very rare. Strip 32, we are introduced here to Grizak, who is apparently the Lamite's henchman. It's really great seeing a henchman with a, a name and a unique look and personality rather than just the stock, you know, generic thugs that have appeared in so many stories, even when there's been a, a name villain like the Ultra-Humanite or Luthor. But the idea here is that the Lamite is forcing these guys to give him money or he'll harm their families. You know, basic extortion. That much I get. But first, why is this guy called the Lamite? I mean, is that like a a code name or or a secret name like the Ultra-Humanite? It just doesn't make any sense, and they never really explain it. But second, Grizak says... The all-powerful Lamite will be pleased at the speed at which you are amassing power and wealth for him via unethical methods. But you must be cruel, more ruthless. If you value the safety of your families, obey. Why does the Lamite care how these people are getting their money? Why does he care if it's via, you know, unethical methods, as he puts it, or if they're doing it honestly? He's still getting the money either way. I guess he's evil, so he does evil by evilly forcing evil people to do evil things so he can have their evil money to spend on his evil plans? (laughs) To, to, To quote Spinal Tap, there's such a fine line between clever and stupid. It just seems like overkill. I mean, he can't just be evil and extort money from people. He has to get it by making them do evil things, too. Uh, but this strip has an awkward coloring error. As Superman dashes between Ronaldson and and his would-be killer... Superman's legs are colored the same uh, tone as his skin. So, unfortunately, it looks like Superman forgot his pants. Like I said, awkward. The next note I had, I I really didn't pick up on this, the larger connotations of this, until I sat down to, to do my notes. But Ronaldson, after Superman carries him to the roof, he says, no one could accomplish such a feat but the Lamite. Now, the revelation at the end that the Lamite has all these mutant bugs and whatnot comes completely out of nowhere. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But looking back at the beginning of the story, I liked this because it implies that Ronaldson thought Superman was one of the Lamite's creations. Given that in the context of the story, 
Superman is the only one with these types of abilities, it, it makes complete sense to me that that Ronaldson would think that. Of course, it kind of fails, given that these were printed over the course of two months, and people reading them, you know, people reading the end strips probably would have completely forgotten about the offhand comment here, but I, I like it just the same. We then have this sequence with Superman bending the crowbar. You know, typical Superman stuff. And I could criticize how Grizak got to the roof so quickly, or why there was a giant crowbar on the roof, but it's the Golden Age, so there you go. Uh, then Superman heads back to the Daily Planet and asks him, or and Taylor asks him where he got his information. And Clark just says, from a stool pigeon, of course, but you needn't print that. Now, the issue is ignored after that, naturally, but if he wanted, Taylor could push Clark about where he got his information, and that would have added a, a neat little bit of drama to the scene as Clark attempts to explain away the feats of his, you know, superhero self. We've not quite gotten there yet, but I can't help but wonder if this isn't a step in that direction. Because as we've seen in recent stories, they have been playing up more the idea that that he has to uh, protect his secret identity, and, and they've been working in those references that he can't let that get out. So, just makes me wonder. Strip 33. Uh, unfortunately, unless it got dropped off in the reprint process, this strip is missing the Siegel and Schuster byline, which I found both interesting and weird. Uh, the stylized by and the circle that surrounds their names are there, but there's nothing inside. Um, it, I, if it got dropped off in the reprint process, then someone would have had to have gone in and filled in the art behind it, so... I'm thinking it just got left off originally. Uh, but they were really building up the Lamite in this story. This strip starts off with Ronaldson and his family being taken to an ancient grim castle in the middle of a treacherous swamp. Who builds a castle in the middle of a swamp? I, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm a sucker for supervillains and their trappings, and, and I like seeing these kinds of things getting worked in more. Uh, now, now the Luthor, the Luthor, Luthor, and the Ultra Humanite both had their, you know, their volcanic hideaways and their their floating airships. So this is just carrying on from that. But again, we're seeing more of the classic comic book tropes and cliches. Uh, I, I don't know if I want to say being created, but but at least being brought to the, the eye of a lot of people in these strips. But getting back into how they were treating the Lamite. In an earlier strip, Grizak addressed him as the Noble Lamite. In here, he tells Ronaldson he is about to be honored by an audience with the Honorable Lamite. I just love how the story really builds him as a grandiose figure. Unfortunately, I was disappointed that it never really pays off, but the build-up was, was pretty good just the same. Uh, but Grizak takes him to the castle which, again, builds up the grandeur of the Lamite, as I said, because you see this large room and this raised platform, and, and it's all lit by these, you know, these ancient bowls of fire. And finally, Ronaldson is shoved in front of this thing that kind of looks like a TV monitor. But as he's addressed by the Lamite, the narration says that the rasping voice emanates from nothingness. It's just all very moody and very atmospheric, and you can see this playing out very well in a serial or a movie at the time, or even really like the kind of things they would do later in the Fleischer cartoons. But the 
The offer that the Lamite gives Ronaldson here is pretty brutal. The kinds of moral questions that come up when people are given the kill people or I'll kill your family are not the kinds of questions presented in comic books or, or newspaper comics as this is in 1940. Unfortunately, Siegel doesn't really deal with the moral implications of such a question, but the very fact that he brought it up is pretty surprising to me. Uh, later in the strip, we cut back to Clark's apartment where he's apparently just been hanging out, reading a book. Now, I could complain that he's just lounging about when this uh, Lamite that he has heard about earlier in the story is out doing whatever, but we find out here that he's been monitoring the police scanner, which I found to be very awesome. It makes complete sense to me that he would keep an ear on police calls for the exact same reason that he became a reporter. We never got an origin, per se, in the Sunday strips, but assuming that in the same... Assuming that it's in the same continuity as the dailies, and really I kind of consider it all one big continuity anyway, for the most part, but in the dailies especially, it was established that Superman had adventures before establishing the Clark Kent identity. So it would have been a no-brainer that he'd be monitoring police calls, too. Uh, Strip 34, I liked the art in this strip quite a bit. One panel shows Ronaldson running through the night with the moon and the skyline behind him. Another is a really great panel of the two police officers running down the alley. And later we have a really excellent panel of Superman descending behind Ronaldson before grabbing him and leaping off again. Uh, Speaking of that panel, though, Superman here grabs Ronaldson and tells him, there's no time to palaver. And this seems to be an instance of Siegel how can I say this, maybe trying to write above his characters? Superman has never struck me as the kind of guy that would use the word palaver. And yes, I know that sounds incredibly picky, so don't mistake it for a criticism. It's just, when Superman starts using words like elucidate and palaver, it it just stops sounding like Superman to me. Your mileage may vary. But I love this. Ronaldson is being chased by the cops, And Superman swoops in, and then he grabs Ronaldson and leaps up to a nearby rooftop, leaving the officers completely bewildered as to what's happened. It was just a very fun scene, and a little reminiscent of something that wouldn't have been out of place in Bill Finger's Batman stories around this same time. Uh, Later in the strip, we learn that Clark Kent is among the people that Ronaldson has been charged with killing, and Superman tells him that he knows Clark... He doesn't expound on their relationship, but I found it interesting. Uh, In later years and other continuities, Clark and Superman are known to be good friends. And this is the first time that we've gotten any indication that they know each other beyond Clark's role as a reporter who has, of course, reported on Superman's activities. So it's an interesting contrast to the radio show where Clark is, you know, flat out denying that Superman even exists. This same panel has another bit of dialogue dropped off. Uh, Ronaldson has a speech balloon, but there are no words in it. It's, it's a small balloon, so it's probably only okay or yes or something along those lines. But it's disappointing to see how these things are, are getting dropped in the reproduction. And, and honestly, I'm not sure how they're getting dropped off because as far as I'm aware, they don't have the original artwork for these files. So I... It was my understanding that that they're taking them from the the actual printing in the newspapers, but perhaps I'm wrong on that. 
Strip 35. Not a lot of comments about this strip, except to point out that Superman, or, or Clark, depending on how you want to look at it, uses his Vulcan nerve pinch. This might actually be the first time he's used it on someone other than Lois, but I'm not completely sure on that. If it's not the first, it's certainly a very rare occasion. I kind of feel like I should come up with a snazzy name for the for that power, <laughs> if you can call it a power. Maybe, you know, Kryptonian nerve pinch, or the crypto claw, or the plot device grip. Actually, I kind of like that last one, plot device grip. <laughs> anyway, uh, really, the best thing about this trip is the end, uh, as Superman starts digging into the ground, because it sets up the next strip, strip 36, which opens with a double panel uh, as most of the Superman strips do, kind of a pseudo-splash, showcasing a, a really great shot of Superman plowing through the ground. And then in the next couple panels, he pops out of the ground, as I said, like a Kryptonian whack-a-mole, and proceeds to plow through the guards as easily as he plowed through the ground. Grizak raises his rifle to shoot Ronaldson, but Superman dashes forward, catching the bullet in his teeth and spitting it back at Ronaldson, or at Grizak, excuse me. It's just an incredibly awesome strip and, and full of quite a bit of action for being only one Sunday installment. Uh, the art here is just amazing. We see Superman zipping around and bowling over the thugs and then dashing to rescue Ronaldson. There's a lot of energy in these panels, and this is seemingly where Wayne Boring and Don Commissaro took over the art on the story. And you can kind of feel the freshness in the art. Um, not so much because of the style, because if you really weren't paying attention from week to week, you honestly, you probably wouldn't notice a shift in style. But like I said, there's just an excitement and energy in these strips that, that reinvigorated the storyline. Unfortunately, it seems like Superman killed Grizak when he spat the bullet back at him. And sure, the narration says Grizak was merely stunned, but the art, the art clearly shows the bullet hitting Grizak in the temple with a thump sound effect and we never see him again in the storyline, so you can draw your own conclusions. Strip 37, even this strip really is pretty action-packed, as Superman works his way back into the Lamite stronghold. I could complain that all of the Lamite sentries are now wearing three-piece suits, but it's 1940, and Superman's got a long line of thugs and gangsters in suits ahead of him, so I'll go with it for now. Um, I don't have too many other comments about this strip in particular. We have a really great panel of Superman smashing through the wall, which is something I, I never really get tired of. Good thing, too, since he does it over and over in this storyline. Uh, but he's leaping about, knocking thugs around, evading capture, you know, trashing the castle. Superman looks great. The thugs look okay. <laughs> and the backgrounds are fairly detailed. And then we have this really great cliffhanger panel of Superman seemingly victorious, but the Lamite getting the upper hand after all as Superman falls through a trap door. Unfortunately, that's where it all goes screwy, because we flip the page to the final strip, strip 38, and Superman is caught in the cobweb of a giant mutant spider. As I think I've mentioned, I'm reading all of these Sunday strips for the first time, the comics and the radio I'm very familiar with, and, and somewhat with the dailies as well, but the Sundays are all brand new to me. So when I read this, and I was going along, you know, I was really enjoying it, all this action, Superman beating up thugs and whatnot, 
And then I turn the page, and the story completely flips on me with Superman and this giant spider. I actually stopped, went back, looked, looked again, and tried to figure out if I'd missed a strip. The numbers on the strips themselves confirmed that I hadn't, which really even left me only more confused. Keep in mind, it's not a bad strip. It's not even a bad ending to the story. I mean, the threads are all wrapped up, Ronaldson and his family are saved, and the Lamite is defeated. But it's just a jarring transition from what seemed to be a fairly routine blackmailing story to Superman fighting a giant spider, and and we have these other beasts created by this mad scientist. Aside from the offhand comment from Ronaldson that the Lamite was responsible for Superman, which, as I said, I didn't even catch from my initial read, and (laughs) to be honest, probably wasn't even intended as foreshadowing, None of this was even a possibility in my mind. It's like reading one of those um, choose-your-own-adventure books. I don't know if I, I read them a lot when I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners did too, but you would sometimes when you'd read them, you'd just randomly turn to a page, and the story would be completely insane. That's kind of what this feels like. Um, but the Lamite is very much in the mold of Luthor, or the ultra-humanite. So it makes sense that he would have you know, giant mutant creatures and whatnot, but the revelation in this story just comes out of nowhere. Uh, but all that aside, let's let's talk about the good, because there actually is quite a bit of good, because Superman fighting giant mutant creatures is one of the things that's always cool. And thanks to the awesome art skills of Wayne Boring, the mutant beasts really look great, especially the spider in the first panel. Uh, the ones later in the strip are a little less, but then again, we don't get a, a good view of them either, like we did the first spider. On a related note, the Lamite also looks really great. He looks nothing like the villains that we've seen in the comics or newspapers before, but he's still got a believable look. Actually, he <laughs> he kind of looks like an evil Ed Asner, but with thick, wavy white hair. Um, I'll scan one of these panels for the show notes so you can check it out there. But he, he has a really great look. And I love the dialogue. The Lamite says, I am a man without a conscience. For years I have worked to soak up the nation's wealth. The Chosen is but one of my many tools. Soon the world will be my laboratory. It's the same kind of over-the-top raving we've gotten from Luthor or the Ultra-Humanite. And really there's no difference between the Lamite and those two guys. I mean, Siegel loved his brilliant evil scientist wanting to take over the world, apparently. Even going as far back as the reign of the Superman. It, it makes me wonder why this wasn't Luthor, or, or even the Ultra-Humanite. Um, not to spoil ahead, but Ultra never appears in, in the newspaper strip, obviously, but Luthor certainly does, and not too far away, if I recall correctly. Maybe readers at the time didn't notice the similarities? I don't know. But reading these today, you know, with the broader view of history that we have, and able to look at all these stories kind of at one time... It really does stand out. The final panel of the strip, and the final panel of the story, obviously, Clark is back at the Daily Planet, and Lois, making her first appearance in the story, congratulates him on his story, saying that it was magnificent. And Clark replies, and keep in mind that I'm quoting here, he says, Thanks, Lois, but what I really should have be congratulated upon is having received your approval. The only question I have is, What aliens abducted Clark and Lois and exchanged their personalities? 
I mean, Lois finally starts being nice to Clark, and then he turns into a jerk. So, sigh. <laughs> um, but overall, though, other than the huge left turn at the end, I thought this was an okay story. It's hard to get around that turn, though. Um, it probably didn't come off so jarring in the synopsis, or maybe even when the people were reading these originally, but I actually did think that I had missed a strip or two. Because of that, I can't say this was a great story, but I did enjoy the story to that point. Like I said, it was fairly action-heavy, but not really at the expense of the story like we've seen sometimes. And the last strip was good. So all the parts were good, they just didn't fit together very smoothly, if that makes any sense. I'm not sure what it is about these Sunday strips. Each and every story from the Sunday strips has been just a little bit off for one reason or another. I, I guess Siegel was still getting his head around writing for the format. I don't know. You wouldn't think it would be that much different than the comics or the dailies. Um, but hopefully that will change soon. In fairness, this was probably the strongest one yet. Like I said, except for the jarring jump in the final strip, there were no huge problems with this one that you don't normally find in a Golden Age story. Uh, the pacing issues that plagued Assassins and Spies are certainly not present here, so that was a step forward. On the art, I, I've already talked a lot about the art. It's similar to the past Sunday stories, but better. I was really, really happy with the art in this one. We had uh, dynamic panels and dynamic overall strips. There was quite a bit of nice detail in the figures and the backgrounds. Uh, like I said, the Lamite and Grizzak both have unique looks. It's just good stuff all around. There's no changes in the costume from previous Sunday strips, so nothing to talk about there. The S on Superman's chest is still large and in charge. And while she only appears in the final panel, Lois is still sporting red hair, which to date has not yet shown up in the comic books. If you want to read this, you can find it, like all the Sunday strips covered so far, in Superman, the Sunday Classics from Kitchen Sink Press. Let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. 
for Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site for Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night for Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for and sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneofthegues.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Yeah! While you were listening to those promos, I glanced at the next storyline from the Sunday strip. It is thirteen strips long and ran for four months. So it'll be a while before we revisit the Sunday Strip. Hopefully it will be worth the wait, though. Lois seems to be uh, a much bigger part of that storyline than she was this one. Uh, so maybe her insanity will <laughs> give us some entertainment, if nothing else. Next episode, we will be back to where it all began, the pages of Action Comics, as we look at the Superman story from issue number 28 of that comic. I don't remember the story off the top of my head, but it's the first in a series of stories illustrated by Jack Burnley, the same artist who illustrated the Superman story from the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. So at least the art will be good. But I want to thank you all for joining me this episode. Please remember to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes as well as back episodes. At the site, you will also find links to the show's RSS feed as well as the iTunes link if you want to subscribe to the show. I also invite you to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Links to the show's pages on both networks can be found at the site, or just search for the show on either site and it will come up. Thanks again to Sean Engel for his email. Be sure to check out his Green Lantern podcast at justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. It really is excellent, and I think you'll enjoy it. If you have comments or questions or feedback or you know, just want to be an awesome listener like Sean, please feel free to drop me a line to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I do love hearing from folks, so please let me know your thoughts. Please remember to stop by the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Not only do both sites have all kinds of Superman-related content, but updates about new episodes of the show are also posted on both sites. And I also have two other podcasts that I hope you will check out. First up is Green Lantern's Light. That's a monthly show that I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor, and you can find that at greenlanternslight.com. And finally, there is Legends of the Batman, a weekly show that I co-host with Michael Kaiser, where we are all about the totally awesome Batman. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. 
and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Sank into the swamp. So, I built a second one. That sank into the swamp. So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. And that's what you're going to get, lad. The strongest castle in these eyes.